Hello, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and this episode we will be talking about the Avari and the Unwilling. But thankfully, you're not unwilling. You're here. You're listening, either live or maybe later after downloading this thing, possibly. But nonetheless, <laughs> you're willing. <laughs> Excellent. And as you can hear, I am joined, as always, uh, by the Tolkien, ma- Tolkien maven Trish Lambert and the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. Good morning, Laughing everybody. Maven. You guys are also willing, right? That's right. Oh, willing. Very willing. And able. That's right. Well, not willing anyway. And enthusi- enthusiastic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Enthusiastic. Enthusiastically willing. And we, we, we can go as far as that. Um, excellent. I All right. I on the idea of being ready, you know, as in wedding, willing, and able. I'm not sure about ready, but we'll see. <laughs> right. Exactly. Is there, exactly. Is there like a, is there like a little known subgroup of the elves, uh, that, that, you know, that Tolkien introduces somewhere later that that correspond to the enthusiastic, or like the willing but unprepared, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, f- I just, before we start, quick announcement or, or sort of reannouncement or reminder: we are now one month away from uh, the from Midmoot, from the Mid Atlantic speculative fiction symposium at the university of maryland uh the day after bilbo and frodo's birthday uh and we have a we have a really great crowd forming uh verlin flieger is going to be there talking about her new tolkien project which which is the soon to be released uh edition of the lay of ao true and Detrune that she is currently working on um, and we're also going to have a, uh, a presentation by Janet Croft, um, uh, oh, which great. would be really cool. And uh, lots of the, uh, the list of presentations that people are going to be giving looks really awesome. And we have, uh, we have a, a good crowd coming. We've already actually had to like, go back to, the, to our, our venue for the banquet and like, expand the room because we, we have uh, uh, even more people coming than we thought. So it looks like it's going to be bigger than last year, and it's going to be really fun. So um, I, I, I'm definitely planning to be there, and I would love to get a chance to meet anybody who can make it. I know that not everyone can make it here, and, and we still hope someday to have regional events in other places. But for now, uh, we do have this, and I look forward to seeing anybody who uh, can uh, come and join us uh, in, at the University of Maryland campus uh, on the day after Bilbo and Frodo's birthday. So, uh, so it. I just encourage you to look that up. You can find information on that either in the MythGuard.org website or on the SignumUniversity.org website uh, with the registration links there. So just a reminder to do that. Uh, also, the semester starts on Monday uh, at Signum. Um, so especially those of you who might think about uh, auditing, Demetra Femi's awesome new class that she's uh, that she's uh, uh, offering this term on uh, folklore and the the uh, the sort of the the, the the adaptation of of the sort of the development of flo- folklore motifs and their adaptation into modern storytelling and film with a special focus on vampire stories. It should be a really really cool class. Uh, so I encourage you to uh, to 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 get into that because Demetra Femi is awesome. So. Uh, still plenty of time to sign up to audit there and uh, even if you want to sign up and, and like apply to the program and take for credit there's still we could probably still get you it's getting a little a little last minute for that but we could um, we, we could probably still squeeze you in alright those are my announcements this week 
So let Sounds us good. let us let us start talking. So I want to talk about. So at, at the beginning, of course, usually we go back and, and address some like things, responses that people had to what we were discussing last time. And the first thing that I want to focus on uh, today, as we talk about that, are comments about the frame narrative. Um, uh, and this is especially uh, uh, Philip Menzies very helpfully made a very long post uh, talking about the frame uh, and and uh, sort of making some some objections and some suggestions. Um, I'm going to object to his objection, and uh, but I like a lot of his <laughs> suggestions. His objection was that we were uh, we were kind of uh, 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 pulling back the curtain too quickly. Um, that I was emphasizing, we really, you know, we, we really need to get to Arwen's main question of whether or not to go into the West, you know, like whether or not going into the West is a good idea or a bad idea, um, as part of the frame of episode three. And, uh, he was suggesting that we, we really want to save that, um, and, uh, not go there in episode three. The main thing that I would say in response to that, I, I, it's, I don't disagree with the concept of sort of stretching that out a little bit. And I particularly love Philip's overall concept of having particularly the story of Calibrian be sort of revealed more and more gradually. I'm perfectly willing to do that. Um, but I still think it's really important that we pose the question. We don't have to give the answer, right? We don't have to show what Arwen decides to do or where she comes out of it. Um, but we clearly, I think, we clearly need to be making sure the question is really on the table at the very beginning. Um, and that's that's really all that I was suggesting about the frame in, in, uh, as far as you know, Arwen's question in, in, in the frame of episode three. And I can't, again, I can't see any better place to do that than the debate, right? When the elves are deciding, like, do we go into the West or do we stay in Middle-earth? There it is. Like, the question is on the table inside the frame, right, uh, in our in our first age story. Um, so why on earth would we not talk about that? <laughs> would we not have that come up uh, in the frame um, since that's going to be Arwen's question? And uh, it, it, it can be raised as a non-trivial question, and there are different ways of looking at it, and Celeborn and Galadriel are both going to have a lot to say about this question. So again, it's not like we're going to be just coming to the end and, and, and resolving the thing in, in the frame, but but I do think it would be really good for us to be making sure that that issue is plain because it's going to underline it's going to underlie the whole thing. I mean, we're, we're, we're having we have the great debate at Quiviennen in episode three. By the time we get to the end, we're going to be preparing. We're going to have the unrest of the Noldor by the end of season two. Um, and there are going to be people whispering. Oh, well, like. Melkor whispering, but other people spreading around Melkor's whispering about, hey, like, the elves have gotten gypped, right? They've been robbed, uh, and uh, they're being kept in thraldom. It was a bad idea for them to come where they really belong is Middle-earth, and they're getting, uh, they're getting deprived of their inheritance. That's going to be part of the story that's circulating around the Noldor during the time of their unrest after the unchaining of Melkor. So this question is going to be, you know, and then ultimately we're going to we're going to be, you know, obviously having the departure of of the Noldor at the beginning of season three. So this question is a is 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 a major arc level question um, for both the content, you know, the the first age content of season two 
as well as the frame. And I, it just it seems to me we clearly need to have that. Uh, be, so that's why I think I think episode three should be the one where this question really comes out, and Arwen finally like up and asks the question that's really burning in her mind. What we can then go on and reveal is a more of the background, right? It's totally fine. Again, we'd like to learn more of the Calabrian story. I, you know, we said last time we should probably you know we should save Eladon and Elro here, and we didn't need to introduce them right away there in episode three. Um, so yeah, br- by all means, bring in the twins' perspective and their experience um, with their mom. Uh, you know, let's bring in, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's bring in other things. And, and let's finally, let's have n- not until the very end does she, you know, come to a, a conclusion that she's sort of willing to, to live with. Uh, for the moment, of course, it's going to be impacted by the whole Aragorn situation in uh, season five. But um, anyway... I, that's why I, I think, to me, it fits so clearly in the arc, and it's really important, I think, for us to introduce the question. So that's what I want. That's I just sort of to both to defend and to clarify uh, what I would assert about the importance of the frame there, and why I would definitely not want to push that issue back. Um, and I don't really think it's going to be it's going to be revealing too much if we do it that way. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I mean, the dilemma over what to cover the rest of the season if we reveal this, uh, you know, or if we if we tackle this in the third episode, I, I don't know that that's. Ne- I don't think it would be necessarily different um, if we mm-hmm. delayed this till later. Then there's a question of what to cover before until then. So right. I think I think this works. Like we 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 telegraph the that this is the central issue, which yes. it makes sense to as you say it makes sense to do it now because. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're already tackling this in our in our main story, mm-hmm. so you know then we can just fill out details and give other characters give some background. So like show you know so we say we 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 show that this is a dilemma, and then we and then we spend the rest of the season explaining why like why is this even a thing? Right, right, exactly. I mean that's a big part of what the um, of what the frame does or what the 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 main story you know is sort of posing right is to sort of show this whole the the the, the real terms of this you know the the, the going both the going to valinor and the staying in middle earth options are going to be explored over the course of the story seems um, reasonable yeah yeah um yeah good now but uh, uh, the other thing i said though i really do like some of the suggestions uh that uh he makes philip was describing going through and looking at the tale of years which i i philip i agree i really like doing that too and kind of thinking about um you know making sure we're kind of remembering connections and stuff to make and we've brought up this issue before like the fact that uh, that calabrian's departure coincides uh with uh, with with the ride of the Rohirrim you know with the the ride of Aeol the young from the north uh to the to the field of Celebrant and I, I brought that up before in the context of remembering the time distance that we have from the chronological point of our frame uh which is chronologically after the frame of 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 season one and you know, basically, her mom has been gone for hundreds of years already, right? She's been gone for five hundred years or four hundred years in change. Uh, so that's the context in which you know we brought up that historical fact before. Um, but uh, uh, Philip went on to make a lovely point about uh, a, a sort of a potential story for Goadriel. Um, essentially, the significance of the fact that 
Goadriel was that you know according to the unfinished tale story, Goadriel was there struggling with Dol Guldur and assisting the ride of the Rohirrim, at the same time that her daughter was sailing for Valinor. Um, and that that seems to actually kind of represent a choice that Goadriel has made too, uh, which I think is a really interesting thing to explore, and that would be really fun. Mm. And of course, it raised the it raised the the possibility the 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 very delightful possibility of basically depicting um, at least in part uh, and from a distance the ride of Aerol the Young from Goadriel's point of view you know, to kind of tell that story within the frame that we get this like frame story within the frame before we get to the frame story inside the frame, uh, which could, you know, potentially be confusing. But anyway, um, to, to actually do that so that when we come back and tell the, tell the story later on, like 15 years from now, when we get to that point chronologically, um, you know, we, we would be doing again, kind of the same thing we did with the war to begin all wars at the end of season one, where we, you know, we show the thing from, from like, you know, the, the, uh, from the God's perspective and then from the mortal perspective. And we can be basically sort of doing the same thing. We show that ride from as part of the, this, you know, so essentially we, we show it in a way that, that depicts essentially Aerol the Young and his riders as like a pawn on the board in the struggle between Goadriel and Sauron, right? Uh, and, then we show it again from the point of view of Aerol the Young uh, and his riders, who obviously don't uh, uh, don't think about it and, and see it quite the same way, and who themselves are not even entirely sure that uh, that the elves are the good guys. Obviously, as we know. Um, so anyway, I think that's really that's a that's a really fascinating concept, and I'd like to come back to that later on uh, in the frame when we when we get closer to that. Um, he was also pointing out that another thing that happens chronologically uh, 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 um, at around uh, the time of the frame uh, is again chronologically right after the Hobbit, right? Because we're having uh, we were having Bilbo's return through Rivendell on the way home from Erebor uh, near the end or at the end of season one, um, and so. Um, Philip was pointing out that, of course, one other thing that's happening and is happening in the general, you know, uh, the general area of uh, of 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 Lorien and Mirkwood in that time is golems emerging and you know stealing people's babies and terrorizing folks, uh, and so he was suggesting the possibility of like maybe Gandalf coming and reporting that this is happening and and this be mm. something that could actually be worked in. Um, and I, that I think is also a really, a really interesting suggestion. I'm not sure what we'd want to do with it. I mean, uh, Philip raised the possibility of even having a frame episode, which has, uh, you know, some people, possibly Arwen herself going out and trying to help the people, you know, who are being terrorized by the shadow in the night. Um, and that, I think that actually kind of has a lot of potential. I mean, this doesn't mean we have to turn Arwen into an action figure, but she doesn't have to be an action figure to go out and help folks. Um, and in some ways, actually, I kind of find very appealing the idea. I mean, I think we want to, uh, we want to work against this stereotype that the elves and the elf women in particular are just very good at sitting around and doing almost nothing. Um, it's easy to get that impression, right? Um, 
but the idea so or the that idea they, yeah or that it's a choice between uh sitting around and doing nothing or um uh being an action hero yes exactly exactly um i mean she's elron's daughter right so presumably going out to like uh you know to in like healer mode rather than action hero mode um uh would be a thing she would and could do, right? Um, you know, that would not seem inappropriate, especially if we're going to make, you know, uh, Arwen in the end be leaning towards like activist, uh, my place is here in Middle Earth to help to heal, heal its wounds. Um, that's, that would be like, you know, this would be an opportunity for, you know, right away. There's like, you know, there is the, there is a shadow again oppressing people, and it could be even kind of like that. We could even make a little small little miniature parallel to the Dark Rider, right? You know, like people vanishing and and stuff, um, and this dark shadow that is causing that is you know so like the fear that has been laid upon these communities, uh, you know, under the eaves of Mirkwood, could be, you know be parallel, you know, distantly parallel and on a much smaller scale. But again, like the fear of the elves at Quivienen. Um, with the Dark Rider, and she, and but you know here's some she she can go out and and do something about this. And Carita, I agree with you. Going out and helping harried people would be a very queenly thing to do. Absolutely, that's exactly the. I, I think it would it would fit with her role to show her caring about people and going out and doing something. Um, again, without having to 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 make her into an action figure. Um, so and plus, it also seems. It also seems a very kind of Gandalfian thing to do, right? To have him come in and and uh, and be like, "Here's what's going on in the world outside, and uh, we should go and do something." Um, that 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 seems, you know, and having him coming, like he he can't do it himself, right? Because he's got to uh, he's got to go, he's got somewhere else, something else to do. Uh, but uh, but you know, he comes in and asks for assistance. We know he does that kind of thing. So, That's right. uh, yep. So I think that would be good, but that's it. But those, so those are both of those ideas. I really, I, I, I really do like, and I think that we can kind of keep them for later on. So actually, okay. So here's a little project. Um, Philip already, already started this and I think sort of continuing uh, on Philip's discussion. What I would love to see is sort of like a list of events, even if those events are really discussion topics, but, uh, but events, that we would want to do in the rest of the frames. Cause we've talked about a bunch of things, but I still feel like they're kind of really sort of jumbled in my own mind. And I don't have a really clear sense of how we want to put them together in a clear arc. Um, and of course we need to be thinking as Philip was thinking about their connection with the, uh, with the, the, the episodes, the, with the, the frame, the inside the frame, the first stage narrative. Um, so yeah, so we could sort of make a list of the things um, the, you know, the reveals about Calabrian, the other, you know, again, if we do the Gandalf's visit and the, uh, the, the, you know, the miniature shadow by the eaves of Mirkwood thing. And if we do, um, the right of, uh, Errol the Young thing, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff. So, um, anyway, I, I, I'd love to start getting that sorted out a little bit, um, but uh, but that sounds like a really good project for the discussion boards to be talking about. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back to that next time. Um, so okay, uh, the other th- uh, so hmm, 
Hey, I have an idea. Let's wait to talk about the frame for this time until we get to the end. There's right. a good idea. How about that? Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna There's segue to, to, to today's frame, but why do that? Why segue when I could postpone? Uh so let's do that. Okay. That's our battle cry. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Why segue when we can postpone? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tony Mead says, and it's a punt on first down. No, no, no. I'm not punting. <laughs> this, this, this is a this is a this is a tactical maneuver. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, because we know if we start the frame discussion now, it could actually take up the whole entire time if we let it. So yes, this is me like reversing tack here because. Uh, Coward, this is always the best policy. You guys are merciless here. Come on. This is Oh, this I is... like reversing track, so we'll use sailboats racing yes, metaphors exactly. instead of football. I like it. Exactly. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So no, so we're gonna we'll talk about it at the end. Uh, I have ideas about it, but they'll make more sense after we've talked about the content of the episode. Because I mean at the end of the day, by the way, that seems to me the best and most sensible policy. I mean, obviously our central story is the first stage story. And we don't wanna have the frame story driving the the first stage story, we want it to be working the other way around. So it's always best to keep in mind the the logical progression and the you know the 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 narrative drive and the thematic developments of the first age story and have those things be the the things that kind of tip us off and guide us as we make the frame rather uh uh, uh rather than the other way around um so okay all right what i want to then go to i want to i want to pick up on and this is actually another thing um, sort of similar to the 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 frame thread, we talked. I talked about this at the very very. I sort of squeezed this into the the very end of last time uh, of last time, and that is the 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 bad guy story arc. Because um, I love, I still really love this idea of having uh, season two be like the next step forward in Sauron's development. Um, and his uh, and his journey to the dark side. Uh, because the more I've thought about this, the more sense that it makes to me. Um, we're we're at, we're at serious risk um, of being very careful about sort of showing the path that Sauron takes to sort of his moment of conversion. But then, but the danger that we're we we were running in our discussions of this last season and our cheerful discussions of like Sauron jumping right into the super secret necromantic orc project. Um, uh, basically the risk is just making his conversion completely wholehearted and absolutely sudden right you know so he goes from you know slowly and almost reluctantly but kind of coming around to to deciding to side with Melkor and then all of a sudden he's like torturing people for fun right after that like that <laughs> doesn't really work um so i think we would want to um be a little bit more careful about that. So I really love the, again, this was an idea. Okay. So, okay. I'm just all, I'm, I'm just all about praising Philip's work here today. But again, this was an idea which was inspired by the musical theme that uh, Philip wrote for Myron in, uh, in the second season, which is one of melancholy and even regret. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a really sad theme, which emphasizes like the tragedy of what's happening with Myron uh, and the change to him. But I do think we really need to show, okay, so he's shifted his allegiance from Aule to Melkor. But this doesn't mean that, like, he's immediately become, you know, like, completely evil, right? Um, so we need to, we need to, 
to 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 give us to give a mechanism how does how does this guy end up you know being like the tormentor of the elves and the uh you know the 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 head of the orc project and i think that the suggestions that were made last time that that i touched on very briefly at the end of last time um to me i think would really work and that is the the thing ultimately that pushes him over that last frontier um is pride basically the competition with gothmog so he's been you know he sort of feels himself to be in command now um what draws him over is his service to Melkor, right? You know, he, 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 he wants to, he, he believes in Melkor's cause and believes that Melkor's cause is, is, is right. And that, you know, that he's right and the other Valar are wrong. Um, but again, that's not an evil choice, nor is it a choice to become evil, right? He's got to make that step on his own. Um, and, you know, we, we will see that set up, like what attracts him to Melkor's position as opposed to the Valar is his strength. Right. So his his uh, his choice to say, I'm sticking with the guy who's strong and going to get things done instead of like those like namby pamby wusses over there in Valinor is already like showing that he's like on the wrong path. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, um, but he still has to kind of own it himself um, and take those next steps. But that idea with the, the basically the power struggle between him and Gothmog and having that be the thing that ultimately pushes him as he is because Gothmog is already Gothmog is already over the edge. Yeah. Right. I agree. I think that's a great, I think it's a great mechanism to move that, move his downfall along. Makes sense. Yeah. Gothmog can be like pure, ruthless power. And 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 use of power. I mean, the Balrogs are thugs. We, you know, we've talked about this now. Like, basically, the Balrogs are thugs, um, and Gothmog needn't be a very subtle operator, right? Um, Myron is the subtle one, and knows that he is the subtle one, right? He 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 sees, and probably on very good grounds, that he and not Gothmog should be running the operation while Melkor is in prison. Probably both Gothmog and Sauron believe, uh, or Myron as we should still call him, both of them prob- presumably still believe that, that, that Melkor is going to return, right? That he's going to, you know, the, the, the Valar are not going to be able to hold him forever. So they, all of them are sort of, uh, of kind of holding the place um, and wanting to, 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 to continue Morgoth's work um, excuse me. Did I call him Morgoth? That was an accident. I meant Melkor, because he's not Morgoth yet. Uh, I would imagine that uh, Myron would treat Gothbug with fit, very thinly veiled contempt. Mm-hmm. Because Ex- he you knows know? he knows he is yeah. smarter and better and fitter to lead than Gothmog. Um, but Gothmog is strong, right? Um, he's strong and ruthless. Again, that I think is really is Gothmog going to talk with a Brooklyn accent? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys! Yeah. You want I should fix him for you? Yeah, I, I, I yeah. Wear pinstripes. He'll wear pinstripes. <laughs> hey, yeah. As a Red Sox fan, I'm totally into this. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. Um, uh, 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 yeah. So yeah. So anyway. So. Uh, I, so he wants. So he's competing with Gothmog. He's not willing to submit to Gothmog, and that's. And, but Gothmog demands his submission, 
right? Gothmog insists that he is the one in charge, and Sauron has to sort of scheme against him. But since Gothmog is completely ruthless, he can see, like, he will only prevail and be able to take charge uh, and be the one guiding you know, what happens in everything if he, too, is willing to be ruthless. And see, here's the other thing. Here's how I think we can make that go- lead into um, uh, uh, we can make, lead into the super-secret necromantic orc project. Um, Myron is on his own. He doesn't have a posse, right? Gothmog's got a posse. He's got the Balrogs, right? Um, so it's not just Gothmog versus Sauron. It's Gothmog and his gang, Against Myron, and Myron is kind of on his own, right? Um, I mean, uh, maybe he's able to command some of the like monsters, right? That we talked about that that Melkor has at that point, but he doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a crew. Um, and you know, from the beginning, that I was thinking about this when I, I was doing the Lost Road stuff over the last couple of weeks, um, because in Tolkien's mind, it's very clear that like basically. Like the orcs and the Balrogs, um, still, but by 1937, um, uh, you know, after he'd written The Hobbit and right before he starts The Lord of the Rings, uh, the Silmarillion in the in the sort of the 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 final to that point conception of the Silmarillion, he's still thinking of the Balrogs as a large army. There's still in Tolkien's mind thousands of Balrogs, um, and uh, and and he even uses interestingly, he even uses the word cavalry to describe them in the Battle of Sudden Flame, the cavalry of the Balrog of the Balrogs came down. Now, now he, I don't at all believe that he means them to be in fact riding upon horses there. My understanding <laughs> is that basically it's like, you know, in the armies of, of Angband, in the wars with the Noldor uh, and, the, and the elves of Middle-earth, the orcs are like the infantry and the Balrogs are like the cavalry. They're, 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 they're heavier, faster troops. Um, uh, but... Uh, uh, but they're still troops, right? They're still like, you know, those are the two divisions of, of, of Melkor's army. Um, so th- this is what's kind of gotten me thinking of basically if Sauron is like the, the, the leader of the infantry, which, and the orcs individually, of course, are obviously no match for Balrogs, but if there are a lot, so especially if we go in the film film version, if we go more towards the published Silmarillion concept of have there being a much smaller number of Balrogs, um, not having, a, you know, a thousand Balrogs, but having maybe a dozen or maybe a couple dozen or something like that, um, Balrogs. And Sauron then, so if Gothmog shows up at like the confrontation between the two of them and he's got his like you know, 20 Balrogs or whatever. And Sauron shows up and he's like, here's me and my 5,000 orcs. Like that then becomes, he can now meet power with power, but he couldn't meet power with power without a posse. He can't meet power with power in a conflict with Gothmog. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, that makes sense to me. So this is what leads him. So it's the desire for power to compete, to assert himself. Uh, and he could even say, he could even think that he says, like he could even have good motivations or believe that he has good motivations, right? The whole orc project could be in, like he could, Myron could still be telling himself that this is just a means to an end, right? Like Sauron's or Saruman's speech to Gandalf, right? Deploring many evils done by the way, right? Uh, but approving the high and ultimate goal, you know, knowledge, order. Um, 
Myron could be thinking something kind of like that. But hang on a second. We need a confidant for Myron. He needs somebody to talk to, which is not Gothmog, right? Because he's not going to be, he's not going to, uh, if, if we're going to have Myron ever uttering aloud any of these things so that the audience can actually tell what's going on within his mind and soul at this point, he's going to need somebody to talk to. Um, right. Thuring Gwethel, right? Thuring yep. Because, I mean, he's got two. I was going to say a skull with glowing eye sockets. <laughs> a skull with glowing eye sockets. No. <laughs> No, no, no. He does not talk to Bob the Skull. Um, now, <laughs> no, I think that's a good idea. I think Thuring Glassell is a good idea. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, okay, Chris, Graham, and Carita both suggest, what about a big, evil, talking cat? <laughs> <laughs> well, we did talk about Tavildo last Tavildo night, Tavildo lives. We? Yeah, absolutely. We did. Last um, week, they were like, we were like saying that he's he puts in stupid stuff and they both turn around and go, shut up, Tavildo. <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I mean, obviously, the most uh, the most readily apparent allies that we can give to Myron are those that are with him when we get to the Baron and Luthien story, right? Mm-hmm. Draugluin, the father of werewolves, as well, um, is like the other one who's obviously his ally and still with him uh, and working with him. You know, when he is going to be lieutenant of Morgoth at, uh, um, you know, at uh, that island which was Minas Tirith. You know, at Tolan Gowerhoff. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we've got Draugluin, we've got Thuring Gwethil, um, and it would be great to introduce. So, if Thuring Gwethil, that, if Thuring Gwethil is the spy at Quivienen, which, as I said last time, I really, really, really like, um, and she goes back and she reports to Myron, we can have him beginning to scheme. He can just be talking with Thuring Gwethil and, and, basically trying to sort out, you know, what do we do? How do we handle this? Um, what kind of advantage could this give us against, um, against, you know, Gothmog in this, in this, um, in this power struggle? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely Thorin Gwethel and Draugluin, possibly Tavildo. See, it's hard because like, I can't, it's 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 very difficult for me not to laugh at Tavildo because Tavildo is 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 comical. I mean, I think it's one of the great things that Tolkien took it out because, like Tavildo is. I find Tavildo funny in the Book of Lost Tales, even though he's you know even when he's not really intended to be comical, I find him kind of funny. Um, and um, I, you know, I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. We should probably use him sparingly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he could be done. Like, we don't have to use him comically. Like, having a big evil cat is like that could be done in a non-comical way if we wanted to and tried really I hard. I think so. Um, we could even have him, as uh, Chris Graham was suggesting, we could have him basically serving, you know, again, in seriousness and not in comedy as a kind of foil for Huon, which is indeed his role uh, in the in in the lost in the original Lost Tale. And he could even be killed by Huon. Something along the line of Thundercats. <laughs> oh, God. Not exactly like I'm that. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm I'm the I'm the unwelcome comic relief today. I apologize. You turn Tavildo into Snarf. Yeah, Snarf. That's what I was thinking. Snarf. Yeah. 
Um, okay, well, here, here's another problem, though. That won't be comical at all. No, not no, at all. I know. No, really zero comical potential. If, um, if uh, we can't have too many, uh, Drug Lewin is already going to get killed by Huan, right? In, uh, yeah. in the, so we can't have Huan just killing all or half of you know Myron's counselors there. Right. Um, and presumably Thorin Gwethil buys it too, but that that's not even that that happens off stage even in the even everywhere, right? I mean, we never really see that. Um so we totally need to imagine a uh, um <laughs> Rico Richards says uh, uh, you just googled big evil cat. The results were not promising. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. Okay, I'm still willing to uh, 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 hold off on the Tavildo question, but um, I mean, it could be a tight. I mean, it could be a big game cat, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm talking? thinking like panther, basically. You know. Yeah, and it's, it won't. Will it be a talking cat? It won't be. Will it be a talking cat? Well, will you know, like, uh, be a my, talking we, wolf? Will Huan be a talking well, that's dog? True. That's true. In uh, the Jungle Book, right? The most recent Jungle Book, we had Bagheera, right? Right. Was right. talking and leopard. Khan, would, right? So it would be like, Khan, in, like right. an evil combination. Um, yeah. I'm not thinking of what's his name from the Butcher Books. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> what, Bob? Oh, no. Wow. Not Bob. You mean <laughs> Mr. Hello. The Cat? Wow. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Of course. Actually, I have to admit that I like I, I, I am I am affected by uh, uh, thinking of uh, Cat Sith uh, to some extent. But, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But but actually, now I kind of like the idea of it being Bob, just like sort of an <laughs> overly large house cat that Myron Mr. talks cat, to. Yeah. Mr. The Cat. Yeah. 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 Mr. Mr. Like Mr. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that he just talks to and and uh, and and then you know assumes that that Tavildo uh, is thinking and responding. Right. His... <laughs> of course, we could just we could just have Tavildo be like the cat that he strokes Bond villain fashion, you know. And that, that's, that's right. That's, that's right. And talks to yeah. as a crazy person. Yeah. When when he starts uh, when he starts pampering his cat is when we know that he's crossed the line, you know, and has become totally <laughs> evil. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I apologize to cat people for that previous remark. Um, but all I can say is Tolkien would totally agree. Um, but anyway, um, uh, um, well, we don't need to resolve that today. So, uh, what, <laughs> having thought thought about this, though, this is another little sort of project I uh, I would like to invite people who are interested in this because this is a sub theme that we're going to need to keep going all the way through. And I think where brain, we want where we want to, to end it. Yeah, sorry, Dave, go ahead. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was just saying to brain. Uh, so the so the project is to brainstorm uh, Myron's crew. Yes, Myron's crew, and just the whole sort of the the progress of the story arc. Because we're not going to, it's not like we're going to do a whole episode on this, right? You know, at no point are we going to just interrupt the story and be like, meanwhile, here's what the bad guys were up to. Um, this is something that we're going to need to integrate and give glimpses of throughout the story. So the two questions here would be how, you know, what moments in this do we want to touch on and how, how and where do we want to work them in 
over the course of the overall story. My primary thought is where this arc should end. And I think that where this arc should end should definitely be with the beginning of the Necromantic Orc Project. Like Sauron begins to make the orcs is where that uh, is, is definitely where this could go such that because we're not going to need the orcs until next season. Season three is the first time the orcs are going to actually come out and start attacking folks. Um, when we're going to get the, the the initial battles between the orcs and the Sindar and the Nandor um, in Beleriand. Um, and we're going to get that next time um, uh, uh, during season three. So, but we want to set that up, right? We want to have like the, the, the so we, this is both the sort of the turning point and maybe the point when Sauron's name changes, right? When he becomes the accursed, when he becomes Sauron, he ceases to be Myron and becomes Sauron. Um, though we're changing Melkor's name at the end of this season too, so that might be too would it, soon. But would a concurrent name change be out of line? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have to keep thinking about that. But anyway, so so basically, the 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 arc is the ultimate arc is <clears throat> is you know the Myron to Sauron arc. But of course, we also want to make sure that we are reviewing like the imminent threat of the orcs there in Middle Earth. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So we need to we need to 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 be to be building that. But again, that so so thing all these things, Sauron and his counselors, Gothmog and his you know bully boy thug tactics trying to take over Myron's desire to not let him take over and his possibly. Uh, his reasons for that, which at least, at least masquerade as noble reasons, um, and his uh, you know decision to be ruthless and his undertaking of the orc project, um, all this, um, all these things need to we we need to be giving glimpses and reminding the readers, the viewers, excuse me, that these things are happening. Um, so we got to figure out what episode, like what uh, what scenes we want to give from this, and how we want to spread this out among the rest. Of, I think starting with the Thorin Gwethel reporting to uh, to Myron at the end, either at the end of the last episode or the beginning of this one, would work well. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, how how do we want to go on from there, and how do we want to integrate it? Those are. Those are questions that we should also be thinking about as we move forward. Okay, so I've already, I've even given you questions for next time, and I've already assigned you two major projects, right, uh, to, to, to <laughs> listeners. Be thinking about that, like, list of things we want to do in the frame and start thinking about how we might want to shape that, and then list of things we want to show in the progress of the bad guys, you know, and, and particularly Myron's arc. And uh, and think about how we might want to shape that and integrate that or parallel that with the, the Valinor story as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So now, hey, I've got an idea. Let's talk about episode three. Or <laughs> four. I mean four. That's which what we're doing today. Let's talk about episode four. So, okay. Um, one thing I want to I wanna sort of start off by kind of clarifying because I think it really, to me, really relates quickly back to the episode four question because the first question is about the Nandor, right? The first chronologically, the first event that we're going to get here is the decision of Lenway to abandon um, the March. And as several people very rightly pointed out, 
um, uh, on the discussion boards, the published Silmarillion attributes it essentially to fear. Like they get to the Misty Mountains and they're like, nah, no, we're good. We don't, we don't really want to cross the Misty Mountains. Um, we'll just stay here. Thanks. Um, and if we just make them be like, oh, mountains? Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm so tired already. Never mind. Or if we make them like, what? Oh, mountains. I am wholly terrified at the sight of the mountains and I'm going to cower here in fear under the eaves of this forest. Neither one of those stories strikes me as a particularly good story. Um, or a particularly um, uh, sort of admirable, admirable foundation for the cultures of the people of Mirkwood and Lothlorien, which is what we're kind of doing here, uh, looking forward. So uh, that's kind of not enough for me. But uh, the the logical follow up question, which uh, which again uh, was uh, was under discussion on the discussion board, is basically: Do we do we depict Lenway as merely you know, Lenway and his people as as essentially defecting back to the Avari. So, you know, a bunch of the Teleri said, no, we're not going, we're unwilling, we're going to stay at Quivienen. And a bunch of them went, but quickly had second thoughts. Like, basically, is, is Lenway merely having a second thought on the decision to leave Quivienen in the first place? Right? And he's like, actually, you know, okay, we've come a little ways, but... You know, now that I've had some more time to think it over, I think I want to stay anyway, actually. So forget about it. So is that is is Lenway's decision essentially just a recapitulation of the decision that the Avari made? Um, here are my thoughts about this. I think we want to think carefully about the fundamental terms, the fundamental choice that's being made. And this kind of goes back to our discussion last time. As I was thinking it, it kind of came a little bit clearer to me. Ultimately, the two issues... <clears throat> right, the two um, the two major premises of the debate in episode three were fear and desire, right? And there's an argument from fear and an argument from desire on both sides, right? The side of the Avari, they're saying we are afraid of the Valar and we don't entirely trust them and we don't know what will happen to us if we go over there, and we desire Middle Earth. And we like it here and want to stay here. So they have an argument from fear and an argument from desire. The the ones who go, the, the Eldar argument, works very similarly, right? Um, there is an argument from fear. Middle-earth is dangerous and we're not safe here. Let's go to Valinor where it's nice and safe. And an argument from desire. Uh, the West is awesome. The Valar are awesome. And from what we hear of Valinor, that place rules. So let's go there. Um the th so there are a couple different things that I think that we can do with this to kind of, uh, as we move forward, I would say anyone who makes a decision based on either one of the arguments from fear, like that's a bad choice. Anyone who's, anyone who is convinced by either of the fear arguments, um, is, so I, that means I think there's, there's like a subset of people on both sides who are basically doing that. Some of the people who are leaving are leaving because they're fearful. They're like, oh man, we've been living here in fear, like the Dark Rider, and then there was this battle and everything, you know, then they're like, it looked like the world was coming to an end. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and so we could go live with the gods and, and be safe. Count me in, man. Like this place is, this is a, this is a bad neighborhood here, right? I want to go where it's safe. That's a bad reason to go to Valinor. And I would think that people who go to Valinor for that reason are like on pretty shaky ground. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, the people who just reject the Valar out of fear 
are also unruly shakeups. And that, and that can be basically that can that can be well, that's not Aeol's entire story, but um, uh, but I mean distrust of the Valar. Um, which is, you know, distrust in this sense being kind of a subspecies of the fear argument, essentially, um, can be can be Aeol's primary uh, uh, primary argument. Um, but the arguments from desire on both sides are much stronger. And that's where I think we can see. I mean, again, as I was saying last time, we want to make sure that like the arguments on both there are good arguments and bad arguments on both sides. And there are good reasons and bad reasons both to leave and to stay. It's not just a black and white going is good and staying is bad kind of thing. Um, and so here's 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 sort of here's sort of what I'm thinking then. On the one hand, Lenway leaves, decides to stay because of desire. In other words, there is much in common between his desire to stay in like the general Mirkwood Lothlorian region. Um because he loves the place, you know, he, 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 because of desire. Um, but I think there should be something else because my thought is that in this episode, the primary sub, like in, in the debate, the primary theme behind the, 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 the arguments in the debate on both sides are fear and desire. Um, but we get, a, a we can get a glimpse of a third thing besides fear and desire. A third thing, which is really kind of a higher thing than both of those, and that is purpose or calling, right? This sense of, no, we have a, like, it is right for us to do this. Not, I want to do this, or I don't want to do that, but it is the thing that we should be doing. That's what I think we can introduce with Lenway, actually. He doesn't just stay because he likes it. He does like it in that area and that obviously informs him but it's and he doesn't just give up on Valinor and he doesn't just say um you know uh but you know so it's neither fear nor desire but he has a purpose he has a, he he finds something there and this i think is as a, a, a couple people were recalling i had said and we're 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 talking about in the discussion boards this is where i think we bring in the ends the story of the elves awakening the trees and teaching them to talk. Um, I think we need to do that. We need to, I think we need to introduce the ants and, yeah. uh, and, and the origin of the ants. And I think that this is where we do it. Here's what I mean when I talk about, um, when I talk about the purpose for Lenway or this like sense of purpose or calling, um, because again, this has direct bearing back to Arwen, right? Like, are we supposed to fulfill a purpose here on Middle Earth? Um, that's always one of the questions. And when Tolkien says that, uh, you know, basically the Valar were wrong to invite, you know, to 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 bring them out of Middle Earth and bring them over to Valinor, part of the implication really does seem to be the elves were supposed to be in Middle Earth. They had a job to do there. You know, Iluvatar put them there for mm-hmm. a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that reason? Well, generally, like they were, they have something to contribute to the shaping of Middle Earth, right? They have something like the Middle Earth was designed to be like, and you think about the role that they do have, right? We get later on the story of the Ents and the waking up of the Ents, um, but even bef- even um, after that, in the chronology of Middle Earth, before that, in the chronology of Tolkien's writing of the Middle Earth material, 
um, you have the the teaching of the men, like the the humans survive in large part because they meet elves, they meet Avari who are there, and the Avari teach them. They teach them language, and they you know they help them to to survive. Um, and you know we can it, it, you can read it, especially again in the stuff I'm doing right. I'm, my my head is full of the stuff I'm doing in the Lost Road right now. Um, but you can read some of that stuff in the Lost Road to suggest, like, the men would have been toast if not for the Avari. Like, they really saved them um, and helped them to survive. And uh, that's something I think we could actually do when we get there um, uh, to really show the the role that the Avari play uh, there and, and that they're playing a really a really inst- uh, a really productive role. This is what I'm thinking. So I'm thinking it's the account. It's the encounter, like Lenway and Treebeard, basically. He encounters the Ents. Uh, they teach them. He enters into like a partnership with them. Well, I mean, I mean, not a part, like a business partnership, obviously. But like, basically, Lenway sees like, hey, like we have a job here, right? Like, the you know, they he 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 meets the Ents. He teaches them how to speak. He talks with Treebeard. <clears throat> and their conversation goes on so long that the rest of the Teleri just leave. No, I'm just kidding about that. Um, but uh, he, 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 he talks to Treebeard and teaches Treebeard how to speak. And they basically this 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 helps Lenway, Lenway to recognize like we elves have a job to do here. Like there is something that, you know, because Treebeard is attached. You know, Treebeard talks about when as soon as Treebeard does learn to speak, his own job, his own duty is clear. Right. Nobody cares for the forest like I do anymore. Right. Well, but maybe Lenway did. Right. Or maybe Lenway embraces that. Um, here's Lenway being on Treebeard's side like nobody is on 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 the side of the trees anymore. Right. But he recognizes like we have a calling to this. This is this is what we're supposed to do. So does he love Middle Earth and want to stay? Yeah. Does he really like it in Lothlorien and Mirkwood? Yeah. But that's not his reason. Right, that's not enough reason. He's not just—he doesn't just get bored um, and decide to stay behind. He stays behind for a reason, for a purpose, capital P. Um, and we don't even necessarily need to see or show what exactly that purpose is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but he sees that he has a purpose, and the rest of the Teleri who go on—I <clears throat> mean, I think it, it could be really interesting to sort of show. They don't. Um, they don't even really know their purpose yet. So, like, they're continuing to Valinor, to Valinor, and the Nandor are staying behind. <clears throat> but it can even kind of look that it's like it's the Nandor that are far from the Nandor being like the feckless ones who just get bored soonest on the trip. Um, you know, we don't we don't want to depict the Nandor as being like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Never mind. Um, instead, they're the ones who. Who have a who have a goal? Who have a a, a clearer goal? Um, even the, you know so the the because the, the goal of Valinor is still kind of vague. Like they're just going to the good place, but they don't really have a purpose for doing it, um, other than desire, which is a good thing in itself. But it's not really enough on its own. Um, and that kind of discovery of purpose is something that is going to sort of trickle down, right? Elway is going to discover his purpose with Melian. Círdan is going to discover his purpose, right, in staying by the sea. Olway can also discover his purpose in going to Valinor. Um, now we have to, you know, some of those, 
are not really clear to me yet. Always, in particular, is least clear. I think of those. Kierden is most. Uh, Elway is kind of middle ground in my mind. Um, but uh, but I think that again that 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 shift from mere desire to the, the purpose and ultimately, in a sense. <clears throat> the purpose which was at the root of the desire all along, the purpose which is itself the ultimate fulfillment of the desire, or the purpose for which the desire was itself merely a preparation or a guide, or to which it was a guide, um, is, I think, a really interesting sort of sub-theme of uh, season two, ultimately, especially in this first half, <clears throat> with the divisions among the Teleri. Um, so... That's my suggestion about Lenway and his motivations. What do you guys think about that? Well, this does uh, this jives with with our discussion last time about trying to sort of uh, have you know a spectrum of um, of you know kind of like uh, the different motivations and stuff, and having some of them be more noble and some of them be less so. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Hmm. I approve. I am Trish Lambert, and I approve this message. Um, I have a I have a side question, which mm-hmm. I don't think I ever knew this, or if I did, I've forgotten it. Whatever happened? Do we know what happens to Lenway? I mean, theoretically, he could still be alive at the time that the Lord yeah. of the Rings takes no, place. No, we don't. Um, uh, you know, we get um, uh, uh, Denethor, right? Who is right? Uh, I know we got Denethor. Yeah, who branches off and comes across. Um, Though that's a late change, um, again, Lost Road. By the time we get to 1937, by the end of the first phase of this, uh, of the you know the first major phase of the Silmarillion development, um, from the Book of Lost Tales through the Silmarillion, Tolkien was trying to get published in 1937. Um, Denethor and the Green Elves of Osirian are Noldor, actually. Ah. They're a Noldor branch that that branches off and wanders around Middle Earth, and then eventually comes into Beleriand. He changes that to, and his motivation for that appears to be one hundred percent linguistic, um, like philological, um, <laughs> because it creates a more interesting philological situation in uh, Beleriand, right, where you have like a group of people whose whose language was originally Noldoran. Um, but then it changes over time because they're separated from the rest of the Noldor. So you've got the distinction between their language and the other Noldor's language who go to Valinor, but wait, there's more. Then they come into close geographical contact with Teleran elves, right? Uh, especially the Sindar of Doriath. And so their language, which was originally uh, Noldoran, but then changes, gets influ- heavily influenced by the Sindarin language. Uh, from Doriath, and so their language then gets moved in a totally different direction by like that combination of separation and influence. This is how Tolkien is thinking and what is driving the story. Um, he's going to change it eventually to say that they're 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 an offshoot of the Teleri, and I think we we should just stick with that. Um, we're going to need a reason for Denethor to come into Beleriand and to break to break off from Linway. Um, Though he's not going to be broken off entirely, remember, the Ents are going to come in on the side of the Green Elves, uh, along with Baron at the battle later on. And I'm kind of thinking, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking, I want Ents to be involved sooner. I want more Ent involvement in the Me first too. Yeah. for crying out loud. At the least, more Ent sightings. 
Um, I mean, Treebeard talks about being all the heck over Beleriand, right? He's in Dorthonia. Yeah, they should be in... more frequent. Yeah, yeah, almost common to some extent. Yeah, you know? the Willow Meads of Tessaranen. Treebeard has been everywhere in Beleriand, obviously, um, right. based on his song. So, uh, so yeah, we totally need to have him cropping up. I mean, I think having some Ents uh, destroyed in the Battle of Sudden Flame, right, uh, would be would be really mm-hmm. would be really cool um, to have many of them perish with the pine woods of Dorthonian. And we probably should show them hurting Hewarns too. Yes, yes. Ooh, Robert, excellent suggestion. Robert, Robert Brown uh, says uh, Tuor could meet Treebeard uh, uh, down in in the Willow Meads. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that, uh, Robert. I think Tuor in his wanderings should totally meet Treebeard. That is, uh, that is, uh, that's a thing that should totally happen. That's a great idea. Um, anyway, uh, um. So yeah, but as far as what happens with with Lenway, yeah, I don't know if we want to invent a a tragic death for him, you know, at some later point. For now, we don't need to worry about it because he's never going to come into Beleriand, and the rest of the time we're going to be in, but you know, starting basically starting in episode five, we're going to be in Beleriand for the rest of time. I mean, we're crossing the Misty Mountains in this episode, so um, you know, we won't be back. Um, yeah. Yeah, Corita <laughs> says, uh, vis-a-vis the uh, uh, the death of many Ents in the Battle of Sudden Flames. If by cool I mean totally heartbreaking, then yes, she agrees. Um, yeah, yeah, Corita, that's that's exactly that, that's exactly what I mean. Just imagine the added pathos, right? Um, because again, this is it's actually I mean it's one of the functions of Ents, right? One of the functions of Ents is to is to show that. The destruction, the ruin of Beleriand itself over the course of the wars with Morgoth is part of... Like, it's not just the death of the people that is the tragedy. That is a tragedy. But the, but the ruin of Beleriand itself, the destruction of the land and its beauty is a major feature in the story. And one of the things that the Ents do is to, like, invite you to look at... Like, don't take for granted, like, the destruction of forests. It's a big deal. Right. And the Ents help us to like emotionally understand that it's a big deal. Um, So that that's exactly, Karita, what I think that we can what I think that we can do. Like we should be weeping, not just for like um, uh, Angrod and 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 Egnor, who are going to die in the Battle of Sudden Flame and for like Barahir and all of his people who are mostly going to get wiped out um, and ultimately just, you know, leaving Barahir and Baron and the and the and the outlaw band. We're going to have, we'll have plenty of people to mourn over, especially, by the way, remember, Ignor is going to get, I called him Ignor because that's what he's still called in The Lost Road. Ignor um, is going to get a love interest. He's, he's, he's Andret's boyfriend and he's going to die a tragic oh, death right. and she's going to be bereft. So there's going to be lots of. Look how excited he is when he says that. He's going to die a tragic gonna, death. Oh he's man. He's going to Positively giddy over this. <laughs> a little disturbing. Uh, the, well, the, just the, oh, the, the, the pathos. Man, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So, so right. So, we got so lots of pathos. But, but again, the pathos isn't just the people, right? So, we're going to have lots of pathos with the death of Angrod and, and Ignor. And we're going to have lots of pathos with the death of, of, like, the people of Beor, basically. 
But we want people not only to be, you know, weeping for uh, the elves who have died and weeping for the men who have died, but weeping for the ruin of Dorthonian itself. Dorthonian is going to, you know, the, 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 the pine forests of Dorthonian are going to be destroyed. And what's more, then twisted and warped uh, and become Tower uh, Nufuin, right? They're going to become Mirkwood. Um, they're going to become this, you know, evil, twisted uh, forest that even orcs fear to go into. That itself is the tra- is a tragedy, right? That itself, like we should be weeping for Dorthonian, if not quite as much, still significantly. Um, so, uh, I think that's uh, that's so. Ents definitely can be instrumental in that. Um, yeah. Ooh, that's interesting. Tony Mead suggests that Lenway should die in the Second Age in the war wars between Sauron and the Elves. Maybe we could bring him back in at that point. Um, huh. That is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Anyway, okay. All right. So so there's Lenway sorted. But the rest of them decide to go on. Elway and the others decide to go on. Right? They're still going to Valinor. Elway is le- still leading them. He's the ambassador, right? He's still coming back from Valinor and, and urging them on to Valinor. So he might, he'll respect Lenway's decision, right? It will, it will not be an acrimonious parting, I would not think, between Lenway and Elway. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, I guess we could go that way. We could make Elway, it would make Elway's own sort of conversion experience with Melian the more striking, but I don't think we need to go that far, you know, to have him I mean, that's a little bit done, I think Anyway, so so like Elway and Lenway part as friends, and Elway leads the rest of the people and they cross the Misty Mountains Um, uh, So then the next thing we need is Elway's discovery of Melian Um Okay. The fact that we have Elway, be, no, he's it, it, the reason given in the published Silmarillion is a perfectly fine one to maintain that he's going to t- to hang out with Finway. The Noldor have gotten quite a bit ahead, and so he's journeying up to talk to Finway, and uh, he's returning back to his people when he meets Melian. So having him journey alone uh, to go see Finway, like that's fine. Um, and he, remember, he, like, Elway is like the adventurous wanderer anyhow. Um, so nobody would necessarily think it's strange that Elway decides to go off on his own to go see Finway. And he leaves his brother Elway in charge. This, I think, is important, right? Um, he, when he leaves to go see Finway, the last thing that he tells Elway is, you know, make sure you can you keep the people moving, right? You know, continue on towards Valinor, uh, you know, and I will catch up with you eventually. Um, which, of course, is true. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, like, after his death, but whatever. Like, he will catch up with him eventually in Valinor. Uh, also you take Tandos. the really long view. Long, yeah. Which, you know, elves, right? So they would. Anyway, uh, so so he, so he, he, he heads off. Um, uh, what do you guys think about the meeting with Melian? Any thoughts on how to wise, handle that? Yeah. You uh, you don't think we can just portray it as described in the book? <laughs> <laughs> I like, and I apologize, I can't remember who said this, but 
somehow that that we see Melian's ability to do sort of what will become the girdle of Melian, mm. you know, the the uh, hiding thing, you know, because it's like with the you know, I suppose. Although we've already separated him from his his group, right? Yes. Um, but the thing is, the ability to do the girdle is they could very well be searching for him, you know, right where he is, but they can't see him yes. because she's yes, she's done that. I mean, I yes. like that. Agreed. We do need a good reason to have them not find him, right? Um, yes, yes. Now, okay. Here's one of the things, that, which is another of the things that has really kind of come much clearer in my mind since doing the History of Middle-Earth series in the Mythgard Academy than it was when uh, back in my old days when I had only read the published Silmarillion. I never really understood the Girdle of Melian. Like, what is it exactly? What is, like, if you were to go to tr attempt to cross the Girdle, to enter Doriath uninvited, what exactly would you experience? I mean, I think when I was originally reading it, when I was young, I pictured just a kind of like force field or like impenetrable barrier, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I had very vague ideas about this. Um, but I, going back and trying to examine my really vague ideas, um, uh, that's, I think, what I kind of had in my mind. Um, but that's not it. When you go back in, in the, Tolkien is much clearer about how the Girdle of Melian functions uh, when you read the, or in, in particular, when you read the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin and you get the story of Turin going to Doriath um, because he and his guides get lost. They don't, you know, that it's, they, they can't make it through the Girdle. Um, and it's only because Beleg finds them and has mercy on them that he brings them through the Girdle. Um, and the, um, the experience that Tolkien describes, it's, 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 it's fear. People are terrified. It's like fear and horror overcomes you and you can't go through. This is why this explains a thing that I never really fully understood. Um, in the published Silmarillion about, um, Nan Dungortheb, the, that, uh, you know, that, really dangerous strip of land north of Doriath and south of Dorthonian, right, where where Shelob's brood all live and where Baron has a really bad time, right? Um, there's this, like, region of madness between... Because you've got two big major sorceries, right? You've got the power of Melian and her girdle bordering the, the like, the evil of the of the forest of Tower Nefuen. Um... And both of them are kind of similar, actually. Uh -huh. Both of them are, like, terrifying and disorienting, right? Mm -hmm. And so the description, even in the published Silmarillion, of that place where the two of them meet, and there's this, like, destructive interference uh, at the boundary between the Girdle of Melian and, like, the horror of Tower Nufuin. And that's why everything goes completely bananas in that region, and it's a land of, like, insanity, um, because of this like destructive interference, but, but it's not destructive interference as between light and dark. They're similar. I mean, the effects are similar. You've got terror on the North and terror on the South. Now, terror f primarily for the enemies of Doriath, right? It's the bad guys who experience terror, but of course the bad guys like the orcs experience terror in Tower Nafuin as well. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so, right, as uh, Robert Brown says, it's more like constructive interference. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, because they are 
similar. Um, not uh, they're they're in conflict, but they are but they are similar. Um, and the more I thought about that, because so so Trish, I was I was thinking about this in connection with what you were just pointing out that people were discussing about, like basically Fingal coming into a a like little mini you know, girdle, girdle field, right. Um, <laughs> around, around, around Nan Elmo, um, uh, where, where they have this, where they have this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and here's why I like this because like it picks up on the theme, right? What do you have? Fear and desire, right? Fear and desire. You've got fear right. and the, him, his overcoming his fear to, to find, because he wants to find what's there. Right. And when he gets past, the fear, you know, when he pushes past his fear and he gets, what does he find? Desire, right? He finds, he finds his own heart's desire and he finds satisfaction. Um, so on the one hand, it's, I, so I, I really, I really like how those, those, those sort of sub themes, uh, really kind of work in and through that. Yeah, that even discover? works. That works really well with the bad guys too, by the way, fear and desire. Myron's story. Yes. You know, that's, that's true. That's true. You know? Right. Yes fear and desire and, and, but sort of twisted into like his desire, but his, his, his desire sort of twisted. And yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, now Brian asks, why is Melian putting fear in this place? Why is she doing the mini girdle thing? Um, uh, she's sort of chosen Nan Elmoth as a kind of a laboratory space to try this out. Right. Is she, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> a little R and D. A little R and D. Exactly. Right. She's on retreat. <laughs> Right. She's like, I got this concept, but I need to, I need to experiment. So I'm choosing, I'm choosing this, uh, uh, this, uh, this little forest as a pilot program. Uh, is Melian we'll a Yavana, Maya? Is she a Yavana person? Um, or do we know? Does it ever say? I mean, because I was just thinking, because Yavana, that would totally be something Yavana would do is like, she would even say, Melian, go test this out. We need to go. You know, I'm sending you to Middle Earth on a on a on a mission to to to, to research this thing. Why am I blanking on this? She's she's a so she sings in Lorien, but she's not one of the people of Lorien. Um, she is. Oh, shoot, is it Yavanna? Uh, it. I mean, does it say? Does is it is it ever specified, or does it? Yes, does he not? it is, and oh, it I is. am okay. completely blanking. Um. Yeah. See, Robert, exactly. That's Robert Brown has anticipated where I was going with this. Nan Elmoth, you'll remember, is the place where Aeol ends up. Oh, and that's rem- right. And as Robert Brown is reminding that's us, right. he's going to do to Arathel, like with Aeol and Arathel, we're going to get like a twisted version of what version happens of with it. Fingal and Melian. That's right. Right? That's right. Um, she that's comes right. through this forest of fear and ends up finding her spouse on the inside but it's a much darker, twisted version of, of, right. uh, of, and she ends up being really imprisoned. You know that makes um, their son, kind of blanking on his name, sort of the uh, dark side of Luthien. Yeah, kind of in a, in a parallel, interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, okay. Brian and Robert are both wondering that she served Vana and Este. I'm not. Oh, sure. okay. That's not true. In the earlier version, sorry again. Like I'm, I've, I've got, I've got, I've got my head full of the lost road, and if I'm remembering correctly, in uh, and now I'm, I'm like totally gonna have to look it up. Uh, which fortunately <laughs> I have the lost road at my elbow at all times. Um, 
I want to I want to say that she is. Um, I'm sure it's not Vanna and Este at that point in in the in the development. Um, great, there are like a billion references to Melian in this book. Um, well, that's not helpful. Um, uh, okay. Um, oh, I've forgotten that. She has another name? Of course she does. Um, hmm. Okay, anyway, sorry. Uh, Toril, by the way, is apparently her other name. I've forgotten that. Um, all right, all right. Um, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, where's that whole the story, this the version of the story that we get in uh in the uh in the Hamas. Yeah. Oh well. Um I'm not going to be able to find it. I'm not going to be able to find it on demand. I I'm horrible at that. Um All right, all right, never mind. Never mind. Um, it was a valiant effort. It was, it was, it was a valiant effort. Um, I think, um, yeah, I know it's Vana and Esta in the published Silmarillion. I think it's Yavanna. I, 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 if, if I'm remembering correctly in The Lost Road, she's of the people of Yavanna. Um, she hangs out in Lorien but she's not of the people of Lorien. Um, but that's okay, right? I mean, we can... I'm actually okay depicting the Maiar as, like, slightly more sort of free agents. Um, mm, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Brian Paterini is teasing me. Uh, we're now into Professor Olson mutters provocatively about obscure Tolkien stories. I, know, the I was thinking about. <laughs> I was thinking about how fun that's going to be for people listening to the podcast yeah, no, as an good. audio. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, all right. It's fine. So she's she's. She's definitely in Lorien, um, but the fact that she's we, we we can have her be of the people of Lorien, but the fact that she's of the people of Lorien still itself it wouldn't even stop her from coming at no, the right. behest of Yavanna. Like she and Yavanna could be sure. hanging out in Lorien. Um, do we want to do that? By the way, do we want to have do we do we want to just meet Melian out of nowhere? Do we want to do a, a previous scene with Melian in Valinor and like why on earth Melian is there? And what her We've point mentioned is? before that we wanted her to be present, even in the first season. Yes, not yeah. necessarily named or something, but and see, um, this is this is this is kind of so. That reminds me. So, see, one of the cool things here, um, again, fear and desire, and following up on the the themes from last time, right? So, when Elway vanishes and doesn't come back, everybody thinks he's been nabbed, right? Everyone's like, right. "Oh, great!" You know, there goes another one, and so they're afraid still more again right 
and they per, they track him and they can tra- they can track him to like Nanelmoth. They can track him to the place right. where he vanished and it's a place of fear. And so they're like, oh man, this place is so, boy, we can't even go in here, right? Um, because she sort of sets her girdle around it, certainly post Thingle arriving um, and probably before. So, so anyway, so they're, so, so they're going to be convinced like he's been nabbed and whatever is in that forest is, is evil, obviously, right? Because it like ate Elway and is like, you know, is terrifying to approach. Um, and, uh, um, so they're going to be all convinced. And I was thinking like, well, you know, we have to be careful lest we have, lest we convince a bunch of our viewers that she really is evil. Um, and, uh, like, how are we going to telegraph this to people, to, to our viewers? Um, because the, the Teleri themselves can be in doubt. Um, you know, and when he emerges and is like, hi, I'm fine. And here's my new wife. Right. Uh, I mean, some of his followers can be like, uh, didn't your mother ever tell you about like meeting strange women in forests and uh, like you can't always trust this kind of thing? And, uh, you know, are you sure she's totally above board and not like, you know, some kind of evil seductress or something? Right. I mean, like that's got to be on the table, especially if they have the experience in Nan Elmoth. Right. Um yeah. Oh, interesting. Tony Mead says they can talk about her the way the Rohirrim talk about Goadriel. That's actually a really interesting parallel. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, uh, that's a good suggestion. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That is. Um, but again, we want to be careful lest our our viewers suspect Melian from here on. Right. I mean, we do because oh, we, yeah. we do want to convey. True. Right. That no, no, she's not a bad guy. Right. But how do we do that? Exactly. I mean, how do we both introduce doubts and questions, which would be very natural to be held in the minds of the of the elves, you know, the the Sindar who are looking for him and worrying about him and mourning for him, frankly. Uh, And, you know, and with the parallel that we've established with the Dark Rider. Right. Um, But she turns out to be good. How do we how do we do that? Um, hmm. Karita was saying she's wondering if the mini girdle thing is just kind of a natural thing that happens around Melian um, then the big girdle is her putting forth her power you know, putting forth power to extend uh, that natural that natural quality and she says that the words big girdle amuse me to no end um, yeah yeah <laughs> frankly it's Karita it's really impossible to I uh, Tolkien was obviously much more mature certainly than I um, as like I I can't help but uh, sort of titter Diggle. in an adolescent fashion about the girdle of Melian um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know it's I'm sorry like but you know, one has to acknowledge these things. Um, it's part of the healing process. So, yeah, Mario, like an aura of holy fear. Yeah, kind of like that. I mean, uh, yes, yes. And something that is, but but see, thing. here's the thing. It's not only a terror which absolutely repels the servants of Morgoth, but even potential allies. I mean, there are exactly two people on record who ever just make it through. 
um, howsoever pure in heart they may be, the only two people would be Thingol, if we do it this way, and Baron, right? And again, I like that parallel, like the two of them are fated, right? They're, 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 it is their fate that draws them in. That's why none of the other, that's why none of his followers and kin can get to him and find out where he is, um, because it is not their fate to be able to, to sort of go through there. Uh, right, three, Karkaroth, true, Robert, yes, you're right. Karkaroth with the power of the Silmaril that is in him. I stand corrected. I'm so lucky to have Robert Brown here to keep me honest about these things. Um, <laughs> very good, very good. Um, yeah. Yeah, Tony says it can be cued by the Song of the Nightingales. See, that's a really interesting thing, though, right? I mean, the night, she teaches the Nightingales their song, and there are Nightingales singing around her. Do we want to make the Song of Nightingales creepy? I don't think we do, because we want them associated no. with Luthien, right? That has to be a good thing. The Song of the Nightingales. Um, so you're wondering... Um... Yeah, there's a dilemma, right? Like, how do we how do we plant this? Um, how do we plant um, the the sort of some 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 amount of suspicion that doesn't hang around? Yes, yes. Uh, Robert Brown is suggesting it's how we sh- she's shown to be good by the bird's friendship, um, and yeah, it certainly it will enable us to cre- to to depict a scene which seems obviously peaceful. Again, there's always the suspicion that like it's too peaceful, right? That it's just a put on uh and she's really you like ungoliant in disguise or something. I mean, remember, we've got a we've got a parallel here. Remember ungoliant and Nessa back in season 1, right? Mhm. Um uh so we have actually a parallel for like you know femme fatale that you meet out in the fields <laughs> right and who who like draws you in and then ensnares you and tries to eat you so um you know we have that but this, might, this might be another reason why we need to have her introduced early you know in yeah. valinor no we i see I, her in valinor yeah we definitely right? should see her in valinor and yeah. that by itself should be a good cue for attentive readers i but... mean and not just once but as part of like yes she's there you know when stuff happens and she cries when the trees are destroyed you know what i mean it's like it, it all that stuff. Right, right. Um, yes. Now, Tony Mead points out that, uh, remember, Baron doesn't know who Luthien is or whether she's an evil siren when he meets her for the first time. Um, and yes, like the, the whole, like the way that he is ensnared and, you know, um, drawn in, it's it's exactly in the in the tradition of fairy stories of the mortal man wandering in the woods and seeing the elf maiden from a distance and often those stories really don't end well I mean um, the moment when Luthien the elf maiden turns and sets her hand in Baron's is the moment where Tolkien is like deliberately doing something which is, is a departure from the standard like it looks like the standard uh, fairy tale plot to that point um and that's where that's where the the, the, the dramatic shift comes. Um, okay. So two options then. Option number one. Melian is in Valinor and she's like, I want to go to Middle Earth for some reason. And when she's in Middle Earth, the girdle thing is just a thing that happens. Like she just she automatic it's part of who she is. She projects this sort of like, follows her around everywhere yeah, she goes. Yeah, she's in this like 
this little <laughs> she, girdle bubble. Is she creating girdles in, in, in Valinor as well? <laughs> Presumably not, right? That would be the, clearly the downside of this, right? Is this, uh, is, so, so, so either this is something just native to Melian, and she's wandering in kinda the like, earth, and so it happens to be kind of like her. peanuts. In, yeah, it's kind of like uh, what's his name in peanut pigpen and peanuts, right? <laughs> Just like pigpen and peanuts. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Now the, the, there's two fictional characters I'd never connected in my mind before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, okay, this then the second thing. <laughs> Tony says it's like an emotional version of the unlight of Ungoliant. Um, uh, okay, so th- this uh, option two is she decides to go. She go- she decides to go to Middle Earth for a particular reason, and she is a sta- And I I I certainly incline to the second one because again purpose right like she sees that she has a purpose. Maybe she doesn't understand fully what it is yet. Um, like she she might not actually foresee Thingol personally right, um, but she knows. You know, she has a, a desire to go to Middle Earth, and like, it's part of her purpose, right? She needs to establish, uh, like, to go to Middle Earth and to protect it, or at least a part of it, um, is her purpose. That's her job, and she doesn't know where it's supposed to be or how it's supposed to be. So this gets us back to the back to the pilot project in Nan Helmoth, right? So she's there practicing. Right, uh, she, she's she's practicing the whole girdle creation process, right? And uh, uh, and Thingol stumbles into it, and when he, driven by his fate, uh, comes through the girdle, her first response is not, "Well, I guess I better change the recipe because this sucker's obviously not working." Right? I got, you know, any every lost elf wandering through the woods just waltzes right through this sucker. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta increase the power clearly. Um, but no, that's not her conclusion. Instead, she recognizes that like this is this is her fate right. to join with Thingol, and that you know that uh, that the two of them together are supposed to form a realm. Um, um, yeah, Chris, I think that's exactly what I kind of had in the back of my mind there. Chris Graham says maybe she was planning on being a sort of Tom Bombadil. Uh, but then meeting Thingol changes everything and draws her into the history of elves. In fact, Chris, let's go one more than that. She can meet Tom Bombadil, right? And they'll, and they'll be like, hey, yeah, this is great. Let's let's each of us claim a little part. Let's, let's each yeah. claim, claim a little part of Middle Earth and we'll protect it and we'll be the and we'll be the the the, the and they go and but then you know he goes one way and she goes another because um, we 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 haven't done the Tom Bombadil cameo yet. It's got to happen. Tom so should has Tom to be appear a Maya? Every... Should they have this conversation in Valinor? You know, where Tom's a Maya, maybe in a different form, and then you know he comes to Middle Earth and takes on the yellow boots. And I don't think Tom Bombadil's ever been to Valinor. You don't think so? Okay. No, I think he's been the, right there in Middle Earth. He's got to. He's got to. He's got to stake his. He's got to. He's got to stake his claim. Um, earlier than that. Um, oh, okay. So he he split off way way sooner. Way sooner. Maybe after Al- Almarin, after the yeah. ramps or something. He never left. Yeah. So yeah. if if we show Tom Bombadil setting up, like Tom Bombadil, like uh, laying the foundations of his little cottage, right? That's got to be like during the Almarin period before the destruction of the lamps. Yeah. 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 Clearly. Clearly. Um, and um, 
Yeah, yeah, Robert. Exactly. They they are they are genii locus or genii loci of, yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. the earth. Yeah, because and, and presumably there are more of them, right? There are. Some, I was just going to say that doesn't mean there can't be more of them. There are some yeah. of the spirits of Valinor. Hey, the White Stag and Mirkwood, right? Hey, you know. Yeah, there are lots of there are lots of possibilities of places where you know that have sort of strong spirit. I mean, like Karathras, for instance. Uh huh. Right. That's true. Right. Um. So that's a that's a great way to explain Karathras, actually. <laughs> yeah, I just thought of that, but it is a really good yeah. way to explain it is Karathras. A good way, it never occurred it? to me before. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So 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 maybe maybe we introduce this as a thing, right? Um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. In Valinor, like of that, that many of the many of the Meyer over there, many of the spirits are are basically wanting to come and to 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 go to Middle Earth and. Um, and so Melian is the is sort of the poster child of the Tom Bombadil has has already been there, but again we have to I insist that I insist on the Tom Bombadil cameo in every season like that's got to happen <laughs> <laughs> every single season we need Tom Bombadil at least once right. Um, and all right, actually, all right. wouldn't uh, Goldberry's mother qualify? For, yeah, for that? Goldberry's mother would qualify. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Um, That's a I like that. So she decides she's going to go to Middle Earth, and she's going to and so she's setting up. She's so maybe Nan Elmoth is where is where she decides. Um, <laughs> Tony Mead says each time he should be called by a different name. Yeah, Tony, I agree. He <laughs> oh, should be, have a, a different name every time, but the same boots in every season. He's he's That's got, right. he's got his. Tri- Treebeard yeah. and he should, should meet, you know, and Treebeard calls him by his name. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we totally need to have a meeting between Tom Bombadil and Treebeard, maybe in season three. Um, but yeah, he's got he's, he's got to have his blue his blue jacket and yellow boots from season one. The other thing we could do is, you know how some, the movies do this, I don't know if TVs do this, but, you know, while the credits roll at the end of a show, they'll have, a, like, a little vignette. <laughs> so we could have, like, Tom's vignette well, the credits roll every every episode. <laughs> every episode, every episode is Tom, Tom Bombadil now? just like skipping down the river path. Uh, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Mariel says, "Does he have to have his blue awesome. jacket in every season, that or can his funny. fashion style change?" Mariel, how about this? How about the cut of his jacket can be different, but it's always blue. Like he has a blue jacket, but his blue jacket can change. And he doesn't time. get to have the feather yet. Right, that's later. Yeah, well, different feathers because he loses his okay. feather and gets different feathers. So okay. yeah, his style. His st- in fact, the feather in his cap should be different every time. Uh, <laughs> elaborately different every time. Sometimes it's a little feather. Sometimes it's a huge peacock feather. Sometimes it's a swan's <laughs> feather. Uh, um, Tony Mead says in this season it's a nightingale feather. Absolutely, Tony. Tony absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, this is, this is, this must happen. There's no question. There's no question about this. Um, so, okay, so, but wait a second. So projecting backwards then, do we need to do, do we need to do a Melian scene in one of the earlier, th- ooh, we could meet her. Oh, remember, weren't we talking about maybe Elway meeting Melian in Lorien during the Ambassador time? Yes, in we were. Two? They were kind of hiding each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he noticed her if she doesn't notice him. He's like, right. whoa. Right, he can see her, and yep, that yep. of course sets it up so that we know, so that the viewers—that's how the viewers know that she's not actually like a, an evil, ungoliant, yeah, yeah ungoliant figure, because they will not only have seen her in Valinor, but they will have seen him seeing her, so that when he sees her, it's not like, wow, strange, random, but extremely attractive woman in the woods. Like this is probably <laughs> not sketchy. 
Instead, it will be like, it's her, right? That will be his reaction. Right. His reaction will be, she's here. Oh my gosh. Um, and like the memory of her has been, um, um, has been, has been, has been like haunting him. Um, Ooh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like that. Um, okay, okay. So that's easy enough then to give. That's the cue that we give to the reader um, back in episode two. Do we want then a scene in episode two? Like not with, you know, obviously Elway's not part of that conversation, doesn't hear anything of it, but in the scene where we have him see Melian, we could have the, the sort of the narrative shift to Melian and go from there to a conversation she has with some others. Like Gandalf can be one of them too. Aloran can be part of that conversation, and Aloran doesn't want to go. He's so so like she says, "I want to go to Middle Earth and hang out." And there can be another spirit, like another whom we don't have to name, uh, uh, who's also wanting to go and to become a little genius loci over there. And 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 Gandalf is there, uh, and you know, thinking about Middle, he's interested in the fate of Middle Earth and he's concerned about it. But he, he, he's not going to go. He decides not to go. So then later on, they're going to have to drag him over. Uh, yeah, Tony, that, that, Tony that's, a, that's a great... It's, it's an obvious question. Should we bring Kurumo in? Um, or actually, no. I don't want Kurumo involved in that, but I, I might kind of like Radagast involved with that. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We didn't have Radagast before. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, that's right. We only had Gandalf and Saruman. Because Radagast is kind of going to be like, as an Istari, he's going to kind of set up almost like a genius loci, right? In sort of settling down yeah, and, right. and, and, and being... So he can really, really love the idea. Gandalf can be kind of plus minus on the idea, but Radagast is going to really like the idea. But he's going to be like, not yet, right? Um, um, yeah, Iwendel is his name, uh, Tony. Radagast's name in Valinor. Um, hmm. Yeah, Radagast need, needs to be the name that's given to him by the men of the north around Mirkwood. Sort of I mean, I could see Kurama weighing in on it, um, but it would be more of a, I would want to have my own domain kind of yeah. attitude, yeah. you know. But I don't know. If, if we're going to have Radagast be in on it, then I'd say probably not do Kurama. Yeah, right, well, because see, that's, the other thing is I want to make sure we don't give the impression that <clears throat> that Oloran and Kurama are, like, attached at the hip in Valinor. Right, right. Right. That's true. They're not like best buddies, but they're not um, best friends. No, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine them ever having been best friends. Exactly. So, we, but we've already had them together as like joint envoys. Now I can see Gandalf and Radagast being buddies. Yeah, you know, which yeah. makes the meeting on the road, you know, in Lord of the Rings, much more, you know, mean something more. Yeah, I mean to <clears throat> to show that they know each other and are connected. Yeah, and that Gandalf <clears throat> trusts them. Yeah, yeah. 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 Though remember, <clears throat> in the uh, essay on the Astari, he is sent over basically with Saruman. Right. Uh, you know, Saruman yeah. is, has been That's like true. saddled with Radagast, basically. Uh, you know, he, he's he's uh, Radagast is like his well, not his third wheel, his second wheel. <clears throat> basically, he's sent over as his like uh, sidekick. Um, and uh, uh, and Saruman seems to <clears throat> somewhat despise him from the beginning, but anyway. Uh, that's a story from another time. 
So okay, yeah. so we have that. We can have that conversation with Melian back in episode two. That's fine. So she's going. She's going to set up camp at Nan Elmoth. She, she's Nan Elmoth. This is going to be the place, right? <clears throat> that she's going to choose, and she's going to, and she's going to, and she's going to set up. <laughs> Tony says he's like the unwanted partner in the cop show. Yeah, that's exactly the relationship between Radagast and and uh, and, uh, and and Saruman. Um, anyway, okay, so. She's going to set up in an Elmoth, so she's like setting her girdle about it, and she's and inside. To, and this is where we can do a really fun contrast with Aeol's later on, later on. Aeol's going to come, and after Aeol comes, Nan Elmoth is going to be a place of darkness, right? But maybe she is making it a place of 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 well, it might be still be dark, but like contemplative, Lorian style darkness, right? Um, it will be a you know. The twilight of nightingales, but it will be beautiful and it will be calm and it will be peaceful. And um, he comes in. We don't even have to like what I would kind of like to do rather than showing like him actually froze. I think the thing we have to avoid is have him actually frozen, you know, like. Right. That's yeah, that's that'll that's, be that's just going to be too ridiculous. But what we can do is having it when he crosses. This is the other thing that I really like about having the mini girdle, right? Because once he crosses that frontier, so the frontier itself can be freaky, uh, and he's got to push through it. But then when he gets inside, it's different, right? And there's this clear sense of he is in a, a totally separate space, which feels like a little like pocket dimension. Uh, you know, this th- there can be a it's. A place where it would be easy to believe that, like, time is not functioning in the same way inside as it is on the outside. This, of course, is a thing that we get in. We'll get in Lorien later on. Um, this is something that Galadriel picks up from Melian. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. So that's um, um, all we need is him to go in and it make make it clear he's crossed into a different world, right? Like. Thingol has like gone through the wardrobe. He's in a different place, um, and then we just cut away to the people looking for him. And the people look for him, and they go and they find Nan Elmoth, but they can't go in. They can't and won't go in. And they might even theorize that he did go in and is lost and is clearly died or something. Oh, then all we have to do is show time passing on the outside, and we don't even we don't have to like worry about what's going on on the inside. All then we need is for Thingol and and Melian to come out. Later on, right? Um, and that a lot of time passes, um, uh, you know, while he's in there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert is quoting the description in the published Silmarillion, but yeah, Robert, that's exactly what I think we don't want to actually depict on screen. Um, standing, long years measured by the wheeling stars above them and the trees of Nan. Like, the two of them standing in stasis while the trees are growing around them and the stars are wheeling past is, I think, exactly what we don't want to show on screen. Because, um, again, as a story, that idea of, like, them passing out of time and, uh, you know, like, them kind of encountering each other and, you know, while the world, you know, and having this totally different experience while the world goes past around them is... Um, a lovely concept in a story, but I think it would work terribly on screen. Um, and Tony, I agree, he should look different when he comes out. He should be visibly changed when he comes out. Um, as well as his name, of course, being changed. 
But I think he doesn't come out in this episode. I think we save that at least till the next episode, maybe the episode after. Um, but uh, but anyway, he certainly doesn't come out in this episode. Um, ooh, Mariel's asking if he can be taller. That would be interesting, actually, if he were, in fact, taller. Because, uh, of course, we know he is the tallest of all the elves. Um, taller than... He was before. Oh, oh, you mean as a result of his yes. encounter yes. with Melian? Interesting. That would be, that would be, I mean, we wouldn't want to obviously show it happening, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. That would, yeah. That would probably be the most, you know, some kind of physical transformation of that type would sort of be the yeah. best way to, to communicate something, you know, the change that he's gone through. Yeah. Well, it comes out and his hair is, his, his hair is silver. Um, so, you know, his, his hair is going to change. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just like Jonathan Harker, except totally different. Um, anyway, um, okay, all right. So I think this works. I'm liking this. Um, now we need the decision. Olway and Kirt. Now we have the the second divide, right? Olway and Kirtan decide to go on. Celeborn, Mablung, Beleg, Dairon, all you know the 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 Doriath guys, all decide to stay and keep looking for him. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm thinking it's the reason Olway goes on, I think, can be pretty simple. Um, that's the last thing Elway said, right? Elway told him, to, like, he's, he believes his brother is probably dead, um, that he's been taken like the others, and he is, um, uh, and so he's determined to, like, fulfill his brother's vision, you know, his brother's last wish. You know, his brother said, before he left, his brother said, like, you know, bring the people on to Valinor, and he's determined to do that um, in order to honor his brother's memory. I don't know that that's enough at the end. Like, you know, we talked about Olway discovering his purpose. That's not enough, ultimately, for his purpose, but I think that's enough to keep him going. Um... But I do think it would explain it, 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 it. That seems to me satisfying as an explanation of the split. Hmm. Do you guys think we need more? No, I think that's enough. So the Sindar who stay, would we? I mean, how are they mourning? Are they staying because so like basically is the disagreement ultimately between the Sindar and the other to and you know Olway and Kirden's folks, is it like Olde and Kirden Olway and Kirden and their folk are the people who are convinced that Elway is dead and the people who are convinced that he's not there who are at least highly suspicious that he isn't dead are the ones who decide to stay? Is it just like the ones who like him more and the others are like, Well, whatever. I mean like, you know, I, I what exact how do we how exactly do we... De- it's it's the desire to stay, the reasons for staying that I'm trying to probe. I'm comfortable with Olway's decision to move on um, to complete his brother's work. I want to make sure that we have a really good explanation of the rationale of the people who are staying, especially, you know, since Kelborn's one of them. We have a first-hand witness who can tell us what their rationale was. Um, right. And yeah, Mariel, because exactly, that's exactly the kind of question I think, you know, Mariel says, should they, those who remain, be angry at the others who are giving up? That's, that's exactly the, the, the question. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, do we have any dynamic of that kind? Um, 
because it's it's a very natural I mean if we really kind of try to think through the psychology of of the situation that's a natural thing you know okay you bunch of quitters like aren't you gonna he might be alive you might need our, our help you know um If they do find Nan Elmoth and the mini girdle, that itself could be like a mystery that they're trying to solve. And that they, you know, so they, they believe that he vanished there and they don't know what's there and why it's there. And so they're going to try to stay to get to the bottom of it. But if, but maybe they don't find that out until after Olway leaves. Because that would be kind of hard to imagine, right? If uh, if always like, so we've tracked my brother down to this like forest, which is terrifying, and nobody can enter into it, and he seems to have vanished in there. Well, all right, let's just go then. I mean, that's kind of hard to imagine always doing. But basically, if that if the decision first is those who say no, we insist on staying and continuing to look, and always saying. If he were coming back, he would have come back by now. If he hasn't come back by now, he's probably been lost like the others were lost in, you know, by Quivienne, and therefore we should go. So the, the difference is they want to stay and look, and only after they stay and look do they eventually track down Nan Elmoth. So the finding of Nan Elmoth is like the reward for the people who stay to look. So Celeborn and the others can be like camped out near Nan Elmoth, being like, uh, you know, what do we do? How do we get in there? Um, how do we discover this? And then, eventually, they emerge. Um, yeah. 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 Um, okay. That, I think, would work. That, I think, would work. And so, basically, it can be... It doesn't have to be acrimony on, on either side, really. It can be... like, but, but there can be, like, you know, strongly differing opinions, Right. Um, no, we should stay and search for him and always like with, uh, understanding and sadness says like, you know, okay, like you can stay and look if you want, but, uh, you know, I think he is gone and that we have to, you know, the best we can do is to, is to fulfill his vision for our people. Carry on his work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and they can say, yeah, uh, Chris, I like that. They can tell Olway that they'll catch up. Um, they're not abandoning. Unlike Lenway, Lenway decides to stay. Like he, he makes the concrete decision to abandon the journey westward. The Sindar, Celeborn, right. and, and Beleg and them can say, we'll catch up with you, but we're going to stay and look first. Right. Um, and they fully intend to go on eventually. And they only, as Chris Graham is suggesting here, they only, they only make the choice... Not to go. When are we? Thingo and are we going to see any wistfulness in Celeborn about never having been to Valinor? Um. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I don't think we want him to be all like. Well, I never thought Valinor was no. all that much anyway, and like it probably not worth. Well, and we also to. want don't want it to be a strong longing because that wouldn't you know he he stays after Galadriel leaves, so it's not. Yes, exactly. So he's clearly kind of... tied to Middle Earth. Yeah, he's not he's not pining for it actively and living right. with the regret because yeah he's had right. opportunities to go since then, and he even I mean and what we see in Celeborn is he's like the last one to go. So, um, right. um. 
I mean, if anything, maybe he I... doesn't. Maybe he doesn't actually. Maybe he's not that curious about it. Well, I mean, the yeah. simplest thing, as far, vis-a-vis the frame, the simplest thing to do is to, ha- you know, again, we've got the question of, like, do elves belong in Valinor, do elves belong in Middle-earth? The simplest thing to do is to have, not in a black-and-white, super-simplistic way, but Goadriel is the voice of the one, and Celeborn is the voice of the other. You know, Celeborn is the voice of elves belong in Middle-earth, because that's what he's lived his whole life. You know, he does. He makes the decision first to stay with, to stay to look for Thingol, and then to stay with Thingol, um, and then he repeatedly makes the choices not to leave after that. Um, Galadriel was born in Valinor, so her sense of do elves belong in Valinor is going to be, you know, her perspective on that question is going to be rather different. It's the place of her birth. Um, mm-hmm. So. Um, um, well, Galadriel's yeah. always going to have that era of the exile, right? That's something she never really yes, yes. comes to terms with. Yes, exile and and the guilt associated with yeah. being in exile as exactly. well. You know that Valinor is. She still thinks of Valinor as her home and the ultimate place where she should go and would like to be, but she can't because she's not permitted. She's banned. Yeah, yeah, she's banned. Um, and maybe even hasn't forgiven herself. But that's a subject for a later time. Actually, that'd be a great you know, reason for her to have paired up with Caliborn because there's no danger. <laughs> she's assuming she's going to stay in Middle Earth forever. Yes. Being married to a guy who's, you know, never been to Valinor is like, okay, that makes sense. Yes. I'll just be with him the rest yes. of the day. So it's part of her, like, it's Mary, yeah, marriage to Caliborn is like reconciling herself to yeah, yeah. permanent Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah. Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Anyway, as you yeah. say, subject for another yeah. day. Subject for the beginning of season three. Um, the discussion of how are we going to depict Goadriel during the, uh, the the rebellion of the Noldor and the Kinslang and stuff is going to be super mm. fun. I can't wait for those discussions. But um, And like Galadriel on the Helcaraxa and everything. It's going to be awesome. Well, that's really I do have awesome. one thing I'd like to yeah. say, and I think it would be appropriate for the frame here, and I think it'll change the scene of when she, they meet the Fellowship later on down the line, I would like to actually depict Caliborn and Galadriel as a really tight couple, you yes. know, as a team. Yes. That they really do love one another, and they are a team in this, and they're in full communication, and you know what I mean? It's like she's not the... He's not the, what, weak Worst. husband. <laughs> yes. that we, yeah. That we, yeah. You know, that in other words, they really are a team. And I really would like that to be something we establish now, so that when we see them meet the Fellowship later, it'll be a different experience than what we've maybe picked up as readers. Yes. You know. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that would be good. And uh, Chris Graham, I agree, Goadriel fulfills Celeborn's desire to see the light, just as with Thingol yeah, and Nellian, right? right? Thingol, who longed to return because he was yeah. one of the ambassadors, is satisfied, be, you know, with the light of Valinor that is still in the face Very of Nellian. Very good point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the parallel, obviously, between Celeborn and Galadriel and Thingol and Melian is, is a really strong one, so we can see that same kind of satisfaction. It's like, I don't need Valinor, I have Galadriel, yay! So the two of them are content with each other. Like, she, she has to stay in Middle-earth, and she longs for Valinor, but she is content, and being with Celeborn has, is, both, is both an outward manifestation of her decision to be mm-hmm. content with it, but also a source of her content, right? She's happy, mm-hmm. she's happy with Celeborn here in Middle-earth. Um, even though she does still, in her heart, long for Valinor. And That'll he... make Kelleborn's decision to leave in, in season 50 a, a lot more poignant. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, man. The build-up for that is going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's 
going to be so satisfying when that finally happens. Uh, just That'll imagine, actually be the final season, you know, exactly. actually, I guess. Just imagine 30 years from now, you know, like how much people's <laughs> lives are going to be screwed when they start binge watching this, you know, this, this, this film film project on Netflix, right? And other uh, professors will be holding marathons. <laughs> other professors will be holding marathons. Well, they will last for eight weeks, you know, as uh, they go through the entire thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah. I also, I'm I'm really anticipating this uh, final season where we're just uh, just digging through the appendices, looking for anything we can possibly do. Yeah, well, Robert Brown says, of course, that'll be right the season before we start the new Shadow. Uh, exactly. There the sequel go. Tolkien That's started right. writing. Well, there's also the uh, at the aftermath, you know, uh, uh, show of what Aemir and and uh, oh yeah, uh, oh we could get a, another Aragorn season or two out of Aragorn's King. Oh, easy, right? You know, and so, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no reason to rush and end at the Grey Havens with uh, the departure of the Ring Bearers. We've got several seasons. That's right. Because I mean, Kelleborn's going to stay on, so we also have that happening. Absolutely. You know? So I mean, absolutely. He's really the end of the season, or yeah. maybe, you know, depending. On, I don't know if he leaves before Aragorn dies or not, but whichever one is left, last man standing. Because it's not like we've got. To, it's not like we could possibly end the show without doing the death of Aragorn, right? Oh I no, mean, no. Come on. Yeah. That's got to happen. Oh, of and course Arwen, it can happen. Since, Arwen, since now we have an emotional investment in Arwen to yeah. see the aftermath that happens to her. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, yeah, the death of Arwen, d- departure of Celeborn. I guess Celeborn would have left by the time Do we, that happened. So, isn't, you know, isn't the latest the latest recorded event in the appendices is Legolas and Gimli leaving? Yep. That's, that's true. The, yeah, it's the end of Appendix A. Uh, or uh, yeah, Appendix B, yeah. Yeah, but is that while well, Aragorn is still king, or after he dies? It's after, after. Oh, okay. So it is the I th- latest. I think that's the parting shot of the the season finale. <laughs> just those two guys on like a little tiny little sailing boat, just the two of them heading out, still arguing. How many fish each caught? <laughs> I got five fish. <laughs> still competing. Yeah. <laughs> How many fish have come? <laughs> oh, that's great. It's, it's just the kind of relationship Gimli and Legolas have. Um, okay. All right. All right. So, uh, uh, last thing then. We seem to be not getting to the... Uh, several people were suggesting that we should not do the arrival of the Noldor and Vanyar in Valinor. That was one of the things that was originally on the outline for this in episode. In this episode? Yeah. And I agree. I think, like, we don't want to have, like... And now, for two minutes, let's introduce the elves to Valinor. Right. We want to have that be a much more central focus. Um, so I agree. I think we should push the arrival of the Noldor and Vanyar in Va- to Valinor back to next time. But... I think we could do the departure of the Noldor and Vanyar on the island, right? So we see them disembarking from Middle-earth and heading off, but then, like, the island vanishes and we don't see them arrive. We see them arrive in the next episode. Right. I agree. Um, So this then was my thought. What about, what if Olwe and Círdan see them depart? Now, I, obviously, we don't want to make it really hokey. We don't want to have them, like, running, panting up to the shore and just missing the boat, you know? Like, wait for us! We're... Oh, dang it! You know, like, we don't... We don't, we don't need... <laughs> but what if they see them from a distance? You know, what if they're 
on top of a mountain which could be recognizable later on uh, in you know the in in Beleriand, um, and they're looking out to sea and they see the 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 island departing. Because um, I would kind of like to get all the way in Kyrdin to the shore as well. Well, and also I would like for Kyrdin to look maybe look down and see the area where he, he's actually going to be going to be building the havens. Right, it'd be yeah. like a little inlet or something. Right, exactly. He's. I want to get him there. We don't. We're not going to have yeah. his story yet. That's going to be in the next episode. We're going to get the division between right. Alway and Kierden and Kierden's decision to stay. Um, but um, and we don't even have to have them arrive on. If you have him up on a mountain, he could actually just look down and see that inlet, see the ocean, and that could be sufficient. And they see yeah, the island you know. leaving. The island is enormous. Right. I mean, the island that Guif's. It's a very, very big island. Um, because, like, the island in the Bay of Balar is just a piece of it that broke off, right, uh, we're told. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Karita says, why not? Just one more in the now-honored tradition of person gazing down from a high place shot. It's true, we're very fond of those in film film. That actually can be yeah, a visual yes. motif, Karita. That's I like true. it. Let's own it. Let's own it. Uh, yeah. And as People a sailor, I want to remind habit. you that the Grey Haven should be an, a, 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 you know, a secluded bay or a protected bay. Yes, or the Fallas definitely. Right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. We yes. should have. A, okay. We should have. A, um, they can. So, but maybe we don't have to. We don't have, have to have him arriving at the Fallas or the places that will be no. the Fallas until next time. Right. But yeah, looking down from a high place where he can see the sea, and they can see the sea from a distance, and they see the island dwindling with the Noldor and the Vanyar on it. So we can have the departure of the Noldor and the Vanyar. They get onto the island and uh, and almost start to push it away. Then we cut over to where Olway and Kyrdin are watching from a distance and seeing the departure. Um, and we don't even need dialogue. They can just see it. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. That works. That works. So, um, in the like five minutes we have left, the frame for this time, which we didn't get back to, Kelleborn obviously has to be the one who tells the frame for this time. He's in. He's in it, right? He's in this story. Yeah. This is. This is. So yeah. he is obviously right. the, tell, the speaker here. Um, and I'm not sure. That's as far as I got. <laughs> I'm not sure what else to do in the frame here. Uh, it doesn't feel like... I don't know that we have to do a lot. You know, yeah. we have... I mean, we have talked about the fact that the frame doesn't necessarily have to uh, advance every single episode. Right? Yeah. Its own story, I mean. It needn't, necessarily. Well, let's, maybe we can come back to this at the beginning of next time. Since our uh, faithful and industrious readers are going to be making that list of, uh, of, of th stuff that we want to touch on or do in the frame and we could be coming to think about that next time. Maybe we can come back and revisit this question of like wh which, if any, of those things are going to fit here in episode four. Right. Um, especially centered on a, 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 a Kelleborn narration of this. Okay. All right, fine. So Okay, so so I have questions for next time. I have already given you two projects for next time. The list of stuff we want to cover in the frame, plus the list of uh, scenes that we want to give from the bad guys, right, to develop over the course of the season the, uh, the, the 
Sauron to Myron plot arc and the uh, the growth, the the eventual arrival of the Necromantic Orc project. Um, in uh, addition to that, I have five specific questions. Um, well, okay, four. One of my questions was going to be about the bad guys, so I'll save that one. Four, four specific questions um, about um, episode five. First, what do we emphasize in the arrival to Valinor? So if we're going to do the arrival of the Noldor and Vanyar to Valinor, obviously we've got to make a thing of that. We could even start the episode with that, maybe, I'm thinking. What do we emphasize? Like, what's the theme of that? We, we, you know, how does this... How does this fit in? We need to be making sure we're doing something, not just having a, like, oh, wow, isn't Valinor awesome? And they arrive like tourists and are, like, wandering around, you know, taking selfies in Valinor. Like, there has to be some, like, what do we (laughs) emphasize about Valinor? How does it fit in with the themes of what we're doing, especially thinking about this whole, like, fear, desire, purpose thing we have going on, the where elves belongs question. And remember that the Vanyar and Noldor haven't actually made that yet. I mean, right. they're not, right? They're right. not, they're still kind of a homogeneous group at this point. Right. We so how to, does that happen? Yeah, we have to settle them down at, in Tyrion together, in Tyrion upon Tyrion right. together. Um, right. So the establishment of their, of their, of their city and, and uh, so anyway, so we need to think through stuff. We need, we need, uh, we need, we need to think about that. What are we going to do with the arrival to Valinor? Um, then I want to, uh, my next question, how do we depict Círdan and Ossé's relationship? I mean, we know that Ossé and the, and the Teleri get close, right? And great love grows between the Teleri and Ossé, such that some of them decide not to leave him. How does that happen? Especially given Ossé, the character of Ossé as we depicted it in season one. How do we make this come about? How do we make this develop? Again, what's their relationship like? Is Does Círdan take Ossé as a kind of a mentor? Is this a, is it like a paternal relationship? You know, uh, what's it like? I don't even know. Um, so how are we going to, how are we going to do that? So, so that's, that's, that's my quick, cause I, I'm really, I don't have much of a clue about that. Third, um, do we have Elway emerge before or after the rest of the Teleri leave? Do we need to get rid of Elway uh, and send him off across the sea first and only then have Elway emerge? So in other words, do we have Elway emerge in episode five or not? Do we save him for, for a later episode? Um, do we have that happen at the end? How do we, how do we, how do we work that? And fourth, um, how do we want to connect the Valinor thread with the Teleri thread? So again, we're going to be doing, we're going to have, we're going to be setting up Tyrion and Valinor. We're going to be setting up, uh, again, so I guess this is really kind of a, another version of the first question really, but, but how do we want to parallel that? What kind of connection do we want between what's going on in Valinor and what's going on with the Teleri on the shores of Middle Earth? Um, yeah. So those are my questions for next time. Plus think about the overall bad guy plot arc and the overall frame plot arc. And uh, we'll come back and, and uh, hopefully discuss some of those things next time. All right, so that should keep you guys off the streets and out of the pool halls for the next fortnight while uh, <laughs> we get ready for for, the, <laughs> for our next episode. Uh, so thanks, everybody. And uh, see you guys in two weeks. See you guys in two weeks. Absolutely. So we will we will we will leave it there and say thank you for listening and Godspeed. And